Let's. <laughs> Is everybody warm? Are we? <laughs> We're doing a little better. <laughs> the heat is is on, but it may uh, it may take a minute. So there's some notes right there if you guys need them. That's what this is the last night for this. We've done Genesis through Numbers, and tonight we're going to do Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy is one of my favorite books. Like, believe it or not. Probably, it's in the top two or three books in, in my Bible that have the most notes, um, just because it's, it's an awesome book. But um, we're going to look at that tonight, and the, the notes are tonight are not going to be super linear. Um, we're going to hit, like, the broad strokes, and then I'm just going to start at the beginning of Deuteronomy, and we're going to see how far we can get, So, which is honestly probably not very far, but we're going to try. So, But before we start, let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for bringing us together today to study your word and to know you and to know your law. Father, would you show us um, your covenant history and your covenant ways with Israel and reveal to us how those covenant truths um, deal with us and how we should respond to those and how we should live in light of the new covenant uh, with the law of Christ. Would you bless bless us this this night uh, and bless us as we read. Would you reveal your scriptures to us? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy. Um, Like I said, we're going to do a big, broad overview, and then we'll probably spend most of the time in the first four chapters, just depending on how quickly I can can move. But, um, kind of broad structure things. Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch, and so we've gone through this cycle of... uh, the rise of the people of Israel, their, their exodus, then their fall in the desert in Numbers, which we just uh, looked at last week. And so Deuteronomy is positioned after that. So the people, the old generation has passed away, and the new generation is receiving a new covenant. So the word Deuteronomy, um, in Hebrew, the, the name of this book is just Devrim, which means words. Um, but in, in Greek, which is what we use, Deuteronomy means second law. Deuteronomy, second law. And so this is, there's a lot of stuff that's repeated here. So most notably, the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy 5 from Exodus 20. And the reason for that is that there's a new generation and there's a renewal of the covenant. And in fact, there's some differences between the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5 because it's dealing with different people and there's different contexts. Um, For example, the reason given for the fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath in Exodus 20 is creation, that God created six days and rested the seventh. The reason given in um, Deuteronomy 5 is that God has rescued you from Egypt, has given you rest in the land. And so that, there's a renewal of the covenant, but it's also an expansion of the covenant, a building on top of what has gone before. And so... Um, it's divided into three speeches that Moses gives, or three sermons. The first sermon, which we're going to spend a lot of time in today, or the first speech, is about covenant history. And so that's the first four and a half, or three and a half, three and a half chapters, um, chapter 1 through 443. The second speech, and we'll go into deep detail on that in a minute. The second speech is about covenant stipulations. So Deuteronomy chapter 4 
starting in verse 44, Moses, it's essentially an explanation of the Ten Commandments. So what he does is he, he lays out the Ten Commandments, and then everything after that is an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So Deuteronomy 6 through 11, I've got this listed out. Deuteronomy 6 through 11 is an explanation of the first commandment. 12 through 13 is an explanation of the second commandment, and so on. Um, there's some debate about how exactly these should be divided, but um, most scholars are kind of coming around to this idea. It's something that Jewish scholars have talked about for a long time. Um, but it's part of what we've done in the past with the law in, in Christian circles is do these harmonies of the law, which I, I think I mentioned before. Um, but it's where we take basically the, the five books of the Bible in the front and chop them up. We say, well, these laws go together. They, they say the same thing. And so we're trying to harmonize the law, like, kind of like you would do with the Gospels, where you're trying to put together Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see how they harmonize. Um, but in the past hundred years or so, Christian scholars have come around to the idea that actually we should probably read this as one, as, as it's written, versus chopping it up into little pieces and rearranging it. Um, and so that's why you're not going to find a lot of this stuff in... Um, for example, the reformers, they're not going to see this kind of stuff because they were doing different things with the text. Um, so all that to say, this isn't really a settled, the, the exact structure of this isn't really settled, um, but the general idea is there. So um, things that might tip you off to this, I'm actually going to preach on Deuteronomy 14 in a couple weeks, but go ahead and flip to Deuteronomy 14, and we'll look at one of these divisions between the commandments. So, um, <clears throat> the third commandment is about not taking the name of the Lord in vain. And so, in the description I've given you, this is clean and unclean food. And so, chapters, chapter 14, verse 1 through 21a deals with clean and unclean food. And the idea is that um, the people need to be clean because they bear the Lord's name. Right. Before that, uh, chapters 12 and 13, um, there's some more food laws, but it's a lot about worship. Right. So chapter 12 is about the, the God, where God chooses to place his name and worship there, and so that has to do with idolatry. Um, but you'll notice, and this is one of the enigmas of Deuteronomy, um, chapter 14, verse 21b, you see this weird law. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, does anybody, has anybody ever tried to do that? Do you ever, does anybody eat goat, first of all? Uh, I've had goat one time, and it was good, but it's not something that I eat regularly. But, now, there's kind of some theories on what this means. Um, some scholars will take the, take the view that this is a Canaanite practice, that the Canaanites did this in worship. Um, but what I think is more likely is that this is actually a, this is actually a symbolic law. And because when you get into the next section, it's on tithes and Sabbath days and festivals. And part of what, what this law is getting at is that you're not supposed to, um, the thing that's supposed to nurture a young goat, you're not supposed to kill with it, right? A mother's milk is supposed to nurture the young goat, but you're not supposed to, to torture and kill and, and injure the young goat with its milk. And so in the same way, the tithes and the festivals and the Sabbaths should be nurturing and not a burden on the people of Israel. And so you'll see these symbolic laws all throughout 
this second speech from chapter 4 to chapter 26. And part of what they're doing is they're, they're division marks between um, sections of the, the sermon on the Ten Commandments. Um, so this whole section is, is about covenant stipulations and what the people are supposed to do when they're under this covenant as they go into the land. A lot of it's case law. So um, you have the Ten Commandments as the baseline, and then these case laws are applications, specific applications of the law. So, um, so look for those symbolic laws. That's probably the weirdest one is, is the goat and the mother's milk. But um, if, you, if you see something like that that makes you go, wow, that's really weird, that might be a, a trigger for you to think about, like, okay, is there a division here? Um, so by the way, and I mentioned this briefly, I guess, but the, the way that I have it set out here, um, I'm getting that from James Jordan. Walter Kaiser has his own version. Edward Woods, which is in the Tyndale um, commentaries, which I, I mentioned it the first week. He has another version that's pretty good. Um, but they're all just like a little bit different because the divisions aren't totally clear. So, so you have covenant history in the first speech, covenant stipulations in the second speech, and in the third speech, you have covenant blessings and curses, which if you'll remember, we'll talk about the structure of a covenant later. But this is the broad structure of how a covenant is, is applied to a people. There's, the parties are defined and their history together is recounted. The stipulations and um, guidelines for the covenant are established, and then there's blessings and curses. Blessings associated with obedience and curses associated with disobedience. And so in chapter 27... The people gather at Mount Ebal and Gerizim, and there's these two mountains. Now, this actually happens. He's telling them how to do this in Deuteronomy 27. It actually happens in Joshua. But they gather these two mountains, and they pronounce blessings and curses from the mountains and put the land under covenant sanction. So they set the land apart as part of the covenant. And then toward the end, the covenant is summarized and rehearsed, and then it ends with the succession of um, Joshua after Moses. So that's the broad pattern. You have three major sections, the covenant history, covenant stipulations, covenant blessings, and curses. And then the last chunk of the book is preparing for um, Joshua to take over and to lead the people into Egypt, or into the promised land. Does that make sense to everybody? Good. So now let's go to uh, the very beginning here. And like I said, I'm just going to start at the beginning and... Um, I'm, I'm kind of planning to get through the first minimum four chapters, but um, I don't know if that's going to happen. If it doesn't happen, that's okay, and you've got some notes on it. So, <clears throat> But let's start. Um, before we even get into Moses' first speech proper, um, there's a, an inscription of five verses that kind of introduce the whole thing. So starting in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth and in Edri. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, and he goes on, begins his first speech. 
Now, this is setting up, now there's lots of place names, lots of people names, um, difficult to pronounce, difficult to follow, but you do have a, and we'll talk about this more in detail later, that's why we have a map tonight, <laughs> is so that we can, we can work through some of this stuff. Um, but there is a structure here, a chiastic structure, which means there's, you can kind of see what that looks like on the first note here, um, that this introduction goes through. So Moses speaks, and then we're given a location beyond the Jordan, and then we're given a, a time, there are 11 days from Horeb, that he speaks the words of Yahweh after victory, beyond the Jordan again, Moses spoke. And so we have this chiastic structure, and um, the center of that are the words of Yahweh, the commandments of Yahweh. And this becomes the main theme for the book, that, that Yahweh, the covenant, is established by Yahweh's word, Yahweh's speech through Moses, and the center of covenant life will be those words. It also establishes Moses as the main character. And what actually happens at the end is that Moses becomes a Christ figure, right? In order for the people to enter into the land, the old generation has to pass away. But who's the prime example of the old generation? It's Moses. So before the people can enter the promised land, Moses has to die. And that's, in fact, how the book ends, as with Moses as a Christ figure who enables Israel to enter into the promised land. Um, Deuteronomy is also a land-grant treaty, and the Jordan River is really important for that. So covenant renewal is inaugurated um, beyond the Jordan before they cross into the land. And so the Jordan is, a, is an important crossing point. And in fact, when we get to the book of Joshua, um, you'll actually see kind of two stages of, of conquest. Um, in the book of Deuteronomy, and we'll talk about this tonight, they conquer the... Um, the I'm, I'm getting confused because I'm facing you. They conquer the Transjordan, which is on um, the east side, which is that way for you, before they cross the Jordan and go into the Promised Land proper, where Jerusalem is, um, between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. So that happens in Deuteronomy, and so that's part of the conquest of the Promised Land, but that's not the entirety of it, and Moses is involved in this. And so certain tribes of Israel, um, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and I forget the, what the other one is, but they receive the land on the Transjordan, and the re but that's not the true promised land. There's, there's more promised land to come on the other side of the Jordan, and that's the true promised land. So they're kind of preparing for entrance here, um, and that's part of what's going on with the beyond the Jordan language, which will get reused later. The people are also leaving behind the old way. So they're 11 days from Horeb, which is where uh, the law was given, and they enter into a new victorious life. So they leave Horeb and they go into the land of Bashan, where Og is, and they go into uh, Sihon's land. And so they're leaving behind the wilderness where Horeb is, and they're going into this new civilized place to take over. So there, those are the main themes. Moses, the main character, is preparing for death so the people can enter. Um, God is preparing the land for the people, and he's preparing them. Uh, the people are moving out of the wilderness and into civilized life, and the covenant is being established through God's word. And so those themes get repeated and stressed throughout the book. So the first thing to look at is, is covenant history. And Moses jumps into this with his first speech. There's two sections. Um, there's, the first section is the death of the old generation. And the second section is the renewal of the new generation. So all this, again, you'll remember from last week, all this stuff happened in numbers. But Moses is recounting it in this context for the people. So 
Starting in verse 9, um, they appoint chiefs and commanders and uh, tribal chiefs. But the people refuse to enter the land, even after they've seen how good it is. They're scared to go into the land because um, the people are big. And that becomes important later, but um, we'll get to that. And so they refuse to go into the, the land because the Anakim are there, because the tall people are there. The cities are great and fortified, uh, verse 28 of chapter 1. Um, and so God says, you're banned from the land. They respond by trying to take over the land by themselves without the Lord's help, and they are killed off. So there's a reversal in chapter 1, verse 34. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers. That's an exact reversal of chapter 1, verse 8, where God says, see, I have set this land before you. Go in and take possession. And so he says, go take possession. People don't do it. And then he issues a ban. Now, that's an important word, ban. Um, If you ever see the phrase devoted to destruction or um, devoted to the Lord would be another way to put it. The Hebrew word is haram or um, harem would be another way to say it. And so when Israel goes into the land and they're taking over these people, um, they're called to haram the people, to devote the people to destruction, to devote these nations to destruction. That's what happens with Sihon and Og and those nations. That's what happens with the Canaanites, which is why, for example, in Jericho, um, everything is killed because it's devoted to destruction. But that ban, the devotion, that is supposed to be for the Canaanites and for the people in the land already, is applied to the people of Israel in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. And when they get run out of the hill country, which is actually the wrong way to enter the land, by the way. Um, In fact, let's look at the map really quick. Um, So the people, you'll see Jericho, like in the middle. Does everybody see that, where Jericho is? It's right above the Salt Sea on the west side of the Jordan River. Okay. So that's where the people are supposed to enter the land, from the east, right? Because where's the entrance to the temple? And where's the entrance to the garden? It's on the east. So the people are supposed to enter the land on the east. But when the people disobey God and try to enter the land, they actually enter from the south. And so they're trying to sneak in the back door, and they're trying to do it without God, and he uh, doesn't let them, and they run off. And they're sent all the way down to Hormah, which sounds a lot like harem. It's the same root word, which you'll see um, is in the far south. So that's in map segment B6. You see that. It's to the west of the Salt Sea. And so they're harammed all the way to Hormah. And they're sent out from the land, and they're sent to wander into the wilderness, into the Negev. And they wander around there for 40 years. So that's the death of the first generation. They are devoted to destruction like the nations are supposed to be devoted to destruction. But there's a resurrection that happens in chapter 2. So they wandered around, they traveled in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. And then he sends them back northward. And, and in fact, let's stay on our maps. And there's five different nations they encounter. So the first nation they encounter is the nation of um, Edom or Esau. In this case, it's called Seir. 
And so you'll see that on the bottom in C6 on the bottom of your map. And so they're coming up, they're coming up into this hill country, but they're coming from the east side of the Jordan, not from um, the west side like they had tried to do earlier. So they come through Edom, but God says in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, or chapter 2, verse 4, command the people, you are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, no, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And so Esau, the people of Edom, are safe from Israel for two reasons. First of all, it's because they're related to Israel. So they have a familial relationship with Israel through Esau. But also, God has promised protection for them. And so they become the first model for land ownership and land stewardship for the people of Israel. They, they're in covenant with God. They have the promise of God. One more thing they do is they actually, this is debatable, uh, with, at least with Esau. They also slay giants. And so it, it's actually interesting that giant slaying becomes one of the requisites for entering into the land. Um, so you'll actually see in verse 12, it says, The Horites also lived in Seir formerly. But the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them before them and settled in their place. So the Horites are kind of listed there with the Rephaim and the Emim, which we'll talk about that in just a second. Um, but it's possible those were giants, although not totally settled. So that's the first people they encounter. They encounter the people of Esau, the people of Edom, the people of Seir. Then they travel north, and you can follow their path north, up through Moab. So in... Um, in verse 9 of chapter 2, it says, And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession, because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim, but the Moabites called them Amim. So, lots of words there, but the... Hebrew words. But the same thing applies to the people of Moab that apply to the people of Esau. First of all, they have kinship with Israel. Now, it actually goes further back because they have kinship with Abraham through Lot, right? So um, they're a little bit further removed than the people of Edom, but they still have this relationship uh, with Israel through Lot. And in fact, you'll remember this, this all happens when um, when Abraham and Lot are dividing up the land, right? That's, this, is, this is part of that promise, that God has given this land to Lot. Um, and so they have kinship, and they have the promise of God, but they've also slayed giants. So the Rephaim, that's, that's referring to a, a race of giants, the Anakim, the Amim. Um, now, these may or may not be uh, what you would consider like real giants. They may just be really big people. But the idea is that these giants are representative of the demonic powers in the world, right? So when you get to 1 Samuel and David slays Goliath, in the descriptions of Goliath, he's wearing serpentine armor. And he's dressed like a, like a big snake. And so the giants are representing the serpents. They're representing the evil one. 
And so to enter into the land, you have to slay giants. And part of Moab's claim to the land is that they have actually done this. They've slain giants. So that's the second, second group. They meet with the people of Esau in the south, and they travel further north. They come to the people of Moab. Now, the third people they encounter are the people of Ammon, which is modern-day Jordan. And so God says in chapter 2, verse 19, And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. So, kinship, God's covenant promises. Verse 20, it also counted as a land of the Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zemzamim, a people great and many, tall as the Anakim. But God destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their land, as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, even to this day. So you can probably see the, where the, the giant slaying of the, of the Edomites of, of Esau is a little bit more in question, but it's very clear that the Ammonites did this. So the Moabites and the Ammonites, they're in relationship with Israel through their connection to Lot. They have the promise of God through, through God's promise to Lot, and they've also run the giants off from the land. Now, that's the model. So if the people of Israel want to take hold of the promised land, what do they need? Well, they need to be in relationship with Abraham, in relationship with the people of God, which they are the people of God. They need God's covenant promises, and they need to slay giants, which they're just about to do. So we have these three positive pictures of people that have been in covenant with God and who God has made promises to. And now we come to two people groups that don't have the covenant promises of God. So, um, in verse 26 of chapter 2, we come to Sihon, who is king of Heshbon. Um, now, you can actually see Heshbon on the map. In, it's kind of a cross from Jericho on, on the road, the king's highway. Um, if you can see that, it's going to be C4. And so he's the king of Heshbon, and um, his border is the Valley of Arnon, which is, which is south of that. The, the Arnon River is south of that, and you can see the division there. It goes into the Red Sea, or into the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea. So the people that have crossed into this pre-promised land, over the Valley of Arnon and into Sihon's land, where he rules from Heshbon, and so it's interesting here because it's a little bit different from when they get to Og and Bashan because they kind of negotiate with Sihon. They say, you know, let us through, which I, this is kind of interesting because it's, it's against what God has said. But they say, let us through, um, let us buy some food because we bought some food from the Edomites, from, from Esau. Um, let us just pass through, we won't mess with you. And then in um, chapter 2, verse 20, or verse 30, excuse me. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. Now, who else had a heart hardened by God? And, hmm? Yes, 
but somebody before this. Pharaoh, right? And so you'll remember that Pharaoh's heart was hardened as the people were sent out, right? So people were trying to be let go, trying to be free, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Here, Sihon's heart is hardened for the people to come in and to take over, right? So there's a progression from um, they were slaves, and now they're going to enslave and run off and, and kill the Sinites. So Sihon doesn't have kinship. He doesn't have promise. And so he's subject to the band, to the harem, to the holy war of God, and to the devotion to the Lord. And in verse 31, And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. So Sihon comes out, they have a battle, and then they leave no survivors. And then in verse 36, it says from, this is a hard word to say, Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. Now what was the, one of the reasons they didn't enter the land earlier? What's scary about Jericho? It's high walls, giants, right? They're all related to each other. So this, this height is too big for them. But this is a reversal of 128. Remember chapter 1, verse 28. People say, the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Then all of a sudden, in chapter 2, verse 36, there's not a city too high for us. Because God is with us, and God brings heaven to earth by dwelling with us. So the old generation was scared of the heights, scared of the tall cities. The new generation is confident in the face of these tall cities and tall people. Now, so they have, we have three good pictures, and then we have the picture of um, Sihon. And then the fifth picture is the picture of Og of Bashan. So um, you'll see this on your map. This is really far north. Um, so Sihon is going to be, his, his kingdom would run basically from Eroer, which is just north of the Valley of Arnon, up to Gilead, which is just south of the Sea of Kinnereth, which is actually the Sea of Galilee. Um, so he's got a, a pretty big chunk of land. And then Bashan is north of that. And so Og is the king of Bashan. And Og is in the same situation as Sihon. He doesn't have kinship with Israel, and he doesn't have the promise of God, so he's subject to the ban. Um, it's interesting, though, that by the time they get to this point, they're not negotiating anymore. They just go up and, and run them off. Part of that probably is that Og is a giant. So if you look at um, chapter 3, verse 11, for only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in the Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length, four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. The common cubit is about 18 inches. So roughly, his bed is like 15 feet long. His, um, and what is that? I'm a, I was a math major in college, but <laughs> um, six feet wide. So does anybody have a bed that's... <laughs> 14 feet long, 6 feet wide. I don't. Um, so this is a bed made of iron because it needs to be iron to hold him up, and it's huge. So he's this giant. You'll remember when you, when you get to um, Goliath, 
Goliath, I can't remember what it is in terms of cubits, but Goliath is nine and a half feet tall. So they're on kind of a similar scale. Og is this giant, the Rephaim. And so the people have done it now, right? They have the kinship, they're the people of God, they have the promise of God, and they have killed a giant. And kind of implicitly, by, by destroying the cities of Sihon, they've killed a giant there in the giant cities. So these three, three things come together and define what it means to enter the land. What's more, there's a relationship here between Haram, the devotion to, to God, the ban, and the Olah, which you'll remember we talked about in Leviticus, the Olah is the whole burnt offering, the thing that gets totally burnt up on the altar, the ascension offering. And so Sihon and Og and, and the peoples subjected to this ban, they're burnt up entirely before the Lord. And so they serve as an ascension offering in order for the people to approach God in the land. And so as they're burned up before the Lord, it's a sign of the people's consecration of this land to God. So the old generation is subject to death. They can't withstand the tall people and the tall buildings. They try, but they're, they're devoted to the ban. They're devoted to the Hormah Harem. They're sent to Hormah and Haram there. And then the new generation devotes these people to the ban, to the Haram. And then they slay giants. They're not scared of the tall cities and the tall people. And they're able to enter the land now that they're free from this fear from this old generation. Any questions, thoughts? I know this, this is. I think this is less weird than the heavenly host thing we talked about last week, but it is still a little bit weird. So, <clears throat> so covenant history is the, the first part, and so now Moses is about to start to transition into um, the covenant stipulations, and so he makes a big deal in chapter four about the voice of God. Because you'll remember the golden calf incident, after God gives, gives his words to the people in the Ten Commandments, the people build a golden calf. And so Moses is recognizing this constant impulse to build images, to build statues, to build visual things, uh, to worship. And so Moses wants to emphasize the importance of hearing and listening to the word above seeing God. Because by definition, God can't be seen. That's part of the point that he's trying to make. And so in chapter 4, um, he reminds them of their sin at Baal Peor, which you'll remember is where the people sinned and um, God struck down the people with, with the priest Phineas, who he's, he gives the covenant uh, forever with. <clears throat> and so he reminds them of that and then he says, um, let's start in verse 9 of chapter 4. Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I might let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. So hearing 
and fearing and rearing children all go together. So as you hear the word, it instills a fear of God in your hearts, and you're called to call your children to that as well, right? So hearing, fearing, and rearing all go together. Verse 11, And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone, and the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules that you might do them in the land that you're going over to possess. So we have not yet gotten to the covenant stipulations part. And we're still in the history part. But this becomes one of the central commands, one of the central warnings that God gives to the people of Israel as they enter into the land. And that is no idolatry, no idols. Because this is one of their greatest temptations as they enter into this land where Canaanite religion is popular, where there are statues of Baal and Ashra everywhere. And he's saying, I am not visible in form. I don't have a form that you can see, a form that you can make, and any attempt that you have to, to make an idol out of me is, is worthless. Because I am a, a God that speaks to you. And the covenant is given through speech, not through visual forms. Now certainly God gives us visual forms. We still have you know, communion, for example. That's a, a visible form that we have. But it's the word that makes that effective, not the, um, just the practice, the, the raw practice of it. The, we need the word to establish the covenant. And covenants are word-based, which is why... That's why, if, you know, some churches you go into, the pulpit is, like, on the side. In most Presbyterian churches, although this is not as cool anymore, the cool thing is to have a pulpit on the side, but most Presbyterian and Protestant churches, the pulpit's in the middle because we're emphasizing the word-centeredness of our faith, right? So the word is what makes the, the covenant signs and seals effective. If, you don't, if your baptism and your communion aren't associated with the gospel, then they're not effective. So... Um, this word-centeredness becomes really important um, and in recounting this history God goes ahead and gives a law Moses goes ahead and gives a law before he even gets to the Ten Commandments and so in verse um, 15 of chapter 4 it says therefore watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. Now he goes through everything. The likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. So that's everything on earth. And in the Bible, there's actually kind of um, five categories of, of creature. There's people, male and female. There's beasts. There's birds, there's creepers, and there's fish. So those are the, the five categories of animal. You actually see this in the clean, cleanly, the clean and unclean food laws, but that's another discussion. So he's saying basically anything, no images of anything on earth. And then in verse 19 he says, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven. When you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And so, no images of anything on earth, no images of anything on heaven, because God has no form, and you can't make an image of God. 
But the Lord, verse 20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, <laughs> which is, remember, the, the reason Moses can't enter the land is because he struck the rock. And so Moses has this habit of, of kind of implicitly blaming the people for his own sin. But again, that's another discussion. So verse 21, furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land, I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go and take possession of that good land. And so, before we even get to the, the new covenant stipulations, the new law, he's driving home this point that images are bad, right? God has given you inheritance that you're called to take part of, but if you make an image, you're going to lose that inheritance. And so, um, the implication for us is that we should be word-centered, that we should be um, not focused on, you know, the, the fancy visual things that we could pull off. You know, we could wear um, crazy vestments and, you know, tall hats and everything, but um, we don't do that because we are word-centered and word-focused, and the word is what has power. There's not power in the visual forms. There's power in the word, and the word is what gives um, breath and life to everything else. So, again, we have this covenant pattern of the parties in history being established, the stipulations and the blessings and curses. Um, to bring this to, to life for us, you have the same thing in, in, our, in our current forms, in our, in our worship forms in Christian um, worship, and the way we do sacraments now, right? So, let's, let's go ahead and turn to this. Go, turn to Luke 22. We'll talk about communion for a little bit. I know I'm moving very fast, but <laughs> I was trying to get through those those chapters and um, Deuteronomy there. So Luke 22, um, starting in verse 17, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. And I'm in the middle of, this is on my mind because I'm in the middle of writing a paper on this, but this is, Luke's account is a little bit different from other accounts for a couple of reasons. But one of the things that Luke does is he really identifies the purpose of each element. And so in verse 17, he says, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So, the purpose of the bread, and this is, we, we get mixed up on this, the purpose of the bread is remembrance. It's, it's to bring to, to mind the, the work that Jesus has done to make that present to us. The cup is the new covenant, the inauguration of the covenant. And so you have covenant history with the bread and covenant inauguration, covenant renewal, the blessing that's given to us through the cup. But you need both of those together. You can't separate those. If you have covenant history without the covenant seal, then you don't have a full covenant ceremony. The same thing applies if you have the seal but no... um, 
history to back that up, then, then you don't have a full covenant renewal. Um, the same thing applies uh, to our worship, right? So remember we, we talked about how you wouldn't have communion at the beginning of a worship service for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons is this is the culmination of a covenant renewal. So when we come to worship, it's a, it's a renewal of the covenant each week as we come to the Lord on the Sabbath. And so we recount the history of God. We, we call to mind his salvation for us. He gives us stipulations as we study the Bible. He gives us guidelines for how to live. He exhorts us and, and cleanses us of our sin. And then we sit down and we receive the blessing of the Lord's Supper and the benediction, right? And so Christian worship follows this order. Communion follows this order. And this order of covenant renewal, covenant life, uh, gets recapitulated over and over again, not just in Deuteronomy, but in, in in all the covenants in the Bible, and certainly as we continue to worship and, and covenant with God today. So the relevance for us is that this is establishing the pattern by which God works through his people. And you'll remember we talked about at the, at the very beginning of this in, in the first week, um, keeping in mind where we are in covenant history. But the way you identify where you are in covenant history is by knowing how covenants work and how God works through covenants. And so... Uh, we can identify the fact that we're in a new covenant, partially because Jesus says it, right, in, in Luke 22 and other places, but because we see this pattern of covenant renewal and covenant recapitulation, right? It's not that Jesus is just saying we're in a new covenant. He's actually inaugurating and establishing a new covenant according to the pattern that God established in Deuteronomy and in the rest of the Bible. So, Remember that pattern. Um, remember the pattern of covenant history, covenant, <laughs> covenant history, covenant stipulations, and covenant blessings and curses. And you'll begin to notice that in things that we do. You'll begin to notice um, that threefold pattern as we um, worship. As we, um, you'll see it over and over again in Scripture, and it becomes a really important key to understanding the Scriptures. And in fact, that's that's part of um, part of the reason Deuteronomy is one of the most quoted books of the Bible in, in the New Testament is because of this covenant theme that comes up and the inauguration of the new covenant that's promised in the New Testament. So, <clears throat> so that's a good stopping point because if I go further, it's going to be another hour. So <laughs> any questions or thoughts or comments? <clears throat> You're welcome. <laughs> Um, does, so do you feel like you understand how to read the law better now than you did before? Yes. Good. So the, remember the goal of this whole thing, and the reason we did it in the first place, is because next time you read the Bible from the beginning, I want you to be able to know what to look for and not be bogged down in Leviticus, right? And so I hope that I've helped you do that. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping, you know, you can take some of these notes home and, and be thinking about the structure of these books and, and how to read them better as you, as you do this on your own. So anyway, well, let's pray. And I hear the choir getting ready to come in. So, Father, thank you um, for this day you've given us and thank you for your law, for revealing yourself to us through the rules and the statutes and the commandments that you've given to your people um, generations ago. Father, would you... Uh, use these laws and these rules uh, 
to sanctify us, to show us our sin, to show us our need of you, to show us how to live. And Father, would you use them for your glory as we seek to enjoy you more? Um, Father, would you teach us as we come to your word, as we come to your law, would you teach us how to be good readers? And Father, would you use your Holy Spirit to illumine these things to us as we um, continue to come to your word for encouragement and come to your word for uh, wisdom and understanding of the gospel. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.